0: Strong delivery might be cool, but what problem does it actually help us solve? Ever since the burst of COVID, the delivery industry has been in a boom. We've all seen the rise and fall of the 15-minute grocery delivery industry, and the ever-rising economy of gig workers. However, there are still tons of problems that's remaining. For example, the driver safety and the rising costs of delivery. Cameron Roll recent graduate from the Queen's University started Hover, a drone delivery company to solve the last mile delivery challenges. In our conversation, we talked about the problems of existing delivery industry, how drone delivery can bring changes to how we deliver, and what the world will look like when drone become mainstream. Here is our conversation with Cameron Roll. Yeah, absolutely. First of all, you know, thank you so much for coming to this uh, Ideas Can't Wait podcast. And this, in here, I interview you know young startup entrepreneurs who have you know ambitious dreams and building cool product. Um, so yeah, well, why don't you start off with a little introduction about yourself?
1: For sure. So my name is Cameron Rowe. Uh, I'm the founder and CEO of Hover. We're a drone delivery startup that has been operating in Toronto for the past six months on the Toronto Islands where we conducted our pilot. Uh, And for the past four years, we've been doing various drone services across Canada, and uh, we're looking to just expand that in the next couple of years so that we're doing backyard drone delivery to places across the GTA, eventually across Canada, and uh, hopefully around the world after that.
0: Well, that's amazing, man. Um, And before I get into your drone business, I want to understand, you know, I I saw in your your LinkedIn, you had a previous startup before, so... Uh, you've been in the startup game for a long time you know if you don't mind tell me a little bit more about that
1: sure i i feel like i did some variation of what a lot of entrepreneurs that i see have done which is they start off kind of doing like the lemonade stands the lawn care businesses the snow shoveling kind of doing door-to-door sales and uh i, I definitely think that doing jobs that have given me that exposure to not only selling but also kind of the creativity that's required in entrepreneurship has been something that I've constantly been trying to do. Uh, My dad is an entrepreneur as well. And so that's something that I definitely channel a lot of this from him. Uh, In university, I started along with uh, several other people, a company called Durabite. And so that was our first, that was my first foray essentially into uh, the startup world. And Queens had a really amazing program uh, where they would essentially give you a little bit of funding that's something kind of unheard of. But uh, they pay you a stipend and they give you funding for your company. So the whole four months of that summer of 2018, we had spent uh, at Queens working on our startup. And it was a, a really transformative, innovative idea. But uh, uh, it just, just there's so much opportunity in the entrepreneurial space. And, and I'm just glad that was my first sort of experience into it.
0: Okay. Did you, did you um, always want to do a startup or just... Um, Just so happened that, you know, you met a venture friend and and started getting into it. I I know you talked about you had some influence from your parents as well.
1: Definitely. It was a, a large, I would say, not just a little bit, a large influence from my parents. I think having sort of an entrepreneurial group around you, like humans are very social creatures. And I really think the herd mentality kind of applies in a lot of the things that you do. And so when you see someone that you look up to doing something like this, naturally, you're going to say, hey, this is what I should be doing. And I definitely think that that was probably the catalyst for me. Um, but yeah, having lots of entrepreneurial friends, I, I actually think Queens has a very entrepreneurial part of their school. And when we were at the Innovation Center, it kind of groups those people together. And so that was like having that first little taste, even with a little bit of a safety net, which is what the school gave us, was something that was really amazing. And I, I used that to them apply for like the next 36 program uh the league of innovators program which we've been through as well and and use the learnings in my current business
0: that's amazing man like i I think environment is one of the few very important things that um entrepreneurs need and and um and there's a famous saying from um from why combinator is that you you should be at where the action is and where the action is 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 around you who's entrepreneurs who also doing business I think that you know tremendously um, motivate you to start your own as well um, I want to ask how I, I think you're you're doing economic background right so how did you get into tech um, I would imagine you know um, there's a big big gap so yeah why don't you tell me a little bit about that
1: yeah on paper you probably would look at my undergrad being in an economic and math background and say you know what what is the is there a real tech aspect to it where a lot of the graduates of those programs tend to be doing uh, somewhat financial or even using software now and a lot of people were coding as well as a part of it and so uh, while that was something I was interested in I really think the kind of being I almost call it being an operator and when you're an entrepreneur you are kind of an operator and while I, I actually didn't even get like my grades were good, but they, I was not a stellar student. So it, it, this wasn't as an obvious path for me. When I'm looking at what I'm good at, I'm like, if I'm kind of an average like, math and economics student, why, would I, why am I trying to spend my whole life doing something that I've tried for three, four years, and I'm like, good, like, I can do it, but I'm not uh, excelling at it. So then I was like, kind of taking a hard look at myself and saying, what do I want to do? And it's like, well, in addition to uh, Durabite, the company that we've been working on in university, I also had a side business that I started right around the same time uh doing the drone services so that was when hover was incorporated and so when i look at that and i see like i got really good at doing a lot of these it's basic residential real estate and at the time although i was making good money and it helped pay for my uh degree it was it was nothing major and all my friends were getting full-time job offers in downtown toronto and so i really had a question of like man am i really gonna kind of follow that path and i would say that's the first sort of step that i took that i look back on as a pivotal moment in my life where I said, I could have applied for and likely have gotten one of these decently paying jobs in downtown Toronto, lived there for a while. Um, But instead I decided, you know what? I definitely felt I had more education that I wanted to do. So I actually went back to uh, Queens and I did my master's of business there. And so that was another push because it it wasn't, I should call it the uh, MMIE, it's a Master of Management, Innovation and Entrepreneurship. Uh, Smith calls it a master of business. So it's not like an MBA but uh, it's, it's a running joke actually in our program that it's like, it, it's kind of an MBA, but it's not really. Um, <laughs> but it, that was a, a, almost like a secondary funnel of people who had said, you know what, I, I want to do something entrepreneurial. And so all of a sudden my network, I've now been in two programs where I mm. have this entrepreneurial like group of people around me. And so did the master's degree. It was fantastic. And it was essentially a a good informal business background for me because I hadn't gone through the commerce program. And while I'm a big advocate of like actually just going out and doing and performing and, and operating is gonna you're gonna learn a lot more from that. There is a value in having a formal education, not only from the the like accolade that you receive, but also from the network that you get and from the things that you learn, because you do learn a lot from it. It really forces you to learn and study on things and changes a little bit the way you think. Although there is starting to be a trend of like, oh, people who drop out are able to build successful businesses. And I actually (laughs) do think those two things are positively correlated. If you are a dropout, that is almost an indicator that you are more likely to build a business than if you have finished your degree and then you do something. In my case, it was definitely a a good thing for me to finish. And uh, it it gave me a little bit of a kick as well to say, you know what, we I do want to continue doing this because I wasn't sure. Like yeah. the master's degree could have been a stepping stone for me to say, you know what? I kind of have this little side thing going on where I'm doing real estate services, commercial real estate, that sort of thing. I don't necessarily need to grow that or expand that. I could take my master's degree. And and now I was like, oh, it's great. Now I have a master's and I, I'm more accomplished. and I'm able to get a, a broader range of jobs, but kind of thinking of what I really wanted to do. I said, not really interested in that right now. And so uh, I kind of ventured out on my own and we, we started off doing uh, a lot with public safety and drones. So training, Uh, offering them for for sale for the police fire uh, and and medical so there's a there were so many different areas uh, I I learned a ton from it
0: nice Um, I want to know how did you get into drones Uh, you you were saying that before you started to hover you're already doing helping out with the drone services Um, were you always into drone when you're growing up Um, yeah tell me about how you get into this
1: I actually have a funny um, uh, picture. I'm not sure if uh, you can pull it up or if we're going to use a video or if it's just audio. But uh, of me when I was, I think it was 2001 at my grandparents' house. And I've always loved everything sort of remote controlled. Oh. And so it was looking like hindsight's always 2020, But looking back and seeing how much I loved these remote controlled devices, which I consistently broke within weeks of having them (laughs) because I'd fly the crap out of these things and just like every day do a couple hours of it it was it was pretty obvious and so that kind of forced me to learn how to build them which going back to what you originally asked about a little bit how'd you get into the tech field it, it really is just from hobbies like me building these drones i do a lot of drone racing as well and so building and flying these drones you inevitably crash them and when you crash them you have to repair them and it's like, I'm not rich. So you have to fix it. You can't just buy a new one. And so you kind of get scrappy with it and it forces you to be better because there are consequences. And I definitely think that that was probably the biggest and most impactful thing for me. While I loved school, having the reality of sort of life hit you and say, Whoa, you got to make money. Like if you're doing this full time, like nobody owes you anything, nobody's going to give you money. You know, you got to go out and prove that you deserve to be running this business and prove that if you're trying to raise money that that's what you're trying to do. Uh, or if you're trying to sell to customers, you need to prove that you're going to solve problems for them and add value.
0: Yeah. Um, so, so yeah. So uh, y- y- since you were a kid, you, you love the remote control and, and you love uh, doing drones. And, and since when did you um, thought about, okay, um, this is what I love. I can make it a business. Was there a moment like that?
1: I, I would actually say that my grandfather was kind of not pushing me, but encouraging me to think critically about it because I was chatting a little bit about sort of the job application process for, I think it was like Goldman Sachs or something. Okay. And I was like, oh, it'll be interesting to see. Like, I was like, oh, they're, they're asking questions about my GPA, which is like good. But I was like, I'm sure they have some stellar students. And I, do I want to focus on some of my extracurriculars? And he had kind of talked about it. He's like, you know what? There is also the opportunity to do something on your own. You don't need to do this internship, you know? And, uh, so that kind of was one of the main, I guess, factors for me to say, you know what, let me look it up. And I prematurely, um, registered, like, in my mind, I was like, oh, let's, like, uh, let's file the articles of incorporation and, and let's go for it. And I would say that's a little premature in hindsight, but it, <laughs> There is something about kind of like filing it, paying that $200 fee, like getting that name, starting to look at the website, which it kind of kickstarts something. And I've done it a couple of times. And there's something really special of like taking your first steps and understanding you're kind of venturing into the unknown. And then not only that, sharing it with people, because one of the things I found when you share things with other people, it people who genuinely love you and care about you are going to be excited for you, but it also has the added benefit of increasing accountability. Because if you like people notice, and if you say, Hey, I started this new company. And then six months later, you don't talk about it anymore. Everyone's going to say, Hey, what's going on? What happened to that company that you were excited to start? And so there is something about that and sharing it with people. That is really exciting. That kind of pushed me and, and changes your mind a little bit where you start to be constantly, whatever you're doing on the lookout. Oh, maybe I could do this and sell this. Like when you're traveling, you're like, Oh, would would this be something that this country would be interested in having? Could I sell to them? So it's, it's a really cool mindset
0: nice um it's great that your grandfather um pushed you to do this i remember when i tried to start my business my mom was like um reconsider man like you know um <laughs> go go get a corporate job This startup thing, but it was really my previous co-founder that really motivated me to you know let's just do this you know um fuck all that let's just get registered and we can keep going i'm, I'm really happy yeah. that your your family was you know, supported from the very get go and uh, they're, they're all able to motivate you. uh,
1: (laughs) They're, they are critical though. Don't, don't get me wrong. I I have a, I'll I'll talk about this a little bit like later. I don't want to derail the conversation too much, but I I was looking at my, I didn't pay myself like at all last year. So my T4 was like $1,500. And so (laughs) I'm joking about this with them. I got, I got, I have some money that I put into like retained earnings that I previously taken out of the company put into, investments in the TFSA. And during the whole 2021 stock craze, I was able to generate enough money from the investments to support myself. But wow, when you start to look at like, only making paying yourself $1,500, it's not a lot of money. So it's like, when I tell people this, they're like, holy shit, like, how are you surviving? But you kind of, you kind of get scrappy and you figure out ways to do it. Because by no means are we past that. But we're, we're definitely at a point where our revenues have increased enough so that I, I'm more relaxed, but I still am very hesitant to cut myself a pay. I don't have a salary yet. And that's something actually, it's going to have to start to change. But I'm now year two full-time into this and I don't have a salary. So it, it, you may find it is, talking to entrepreneurs, it, people are doing this. Like it's not uncommon. But then when you talk to other people about it, everyone's like, holy crap, why are you working and you're not even earning money? But it just, yeah. it perhaps it's, stupid of us, but at the same time, we, we understand that there is a value to doing it.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Like especially you have such a big dream that's motivating you every day, even though without pay, will um, get you up and start pursuing, especially drone delivery. I, I was very surprised actually in the very beginning to see you doing drone delivery because I, I think it's such a huge idea and such a huge concept that it can fundamentally change a lot of the way that, that we're living right now. Imagining there's no cars or Uber Eats, there's no nothing like that delivery on the road. Everything else is being delivered on the air. Um, that is kind of a hard thing to wrap around. And I wanna ask you, did you start with the idea of drone delivery when you just get started? Was delivery something that you were trying to figure out or is it something that evolved
1: later on? So this is interesting because it's it's probably a combination of the two. My going through um the next 36 program and pretty much every program that I've been in that sort of like an incubator style, entrepreneurship support network, everyone always says you got to focus on the customer and the problem. And I definitely think initially, I made the mistake of saying, Oh, drone delivery is really cool. Let's, let's look into this. And I've been thinking about this probably for about four years now, ever since I really started the company. And it, but more so an idea, you know, articulating stuff on paper, and less about which I think is okay, but less about um, actually, developing it until recently, and I would say that's something that is crucially important is ensuring that you have a customer that is willing and able to pay for the product or service that you're selling, and ensuring that that you're solving a problem enough so that it, more customers are going to notice it, even though they may say initially now no, and you're going to have that kind of network effect and draw people in to say yes, this is convenient, this solves a problem for us. Um, in our case, the problem that we eventually focused on was the costs associated and the issues with last mile delivery, but specifically mm. for the food side of things. And so this is something I don't know if I'm spotting an apartment that you're in right now. But if you have to order a product to your apartment, and you're in downtown Toronto, it can typically be 25 to 50%. And sometimes even higher, we have some examples of people who paid for smaller orders, double the cost of the order, if it's a $15 meal, they end up paying 30 bucks. And it's like, that's pretty frustrating for some people, even even if it they have the money to be able to do it, which many people actually don't. It's something that it doesn't make sense for this to happen. And so we were looking at that and saying, that's a big problem. What are the steps that we can take to fix this? And one of them was drone delivery. Mm. That being said, I definitely think it's okay to kind of think about it, but we probably went a little bit too close to the like, hey, we have a solution and we're trying to find a problem. And we paid for it a little bit in kind of like Awkward product market fit at first. We thought we were going to do prescriptions and groceries when people don't care about that. we 99% of our deliveries the past summer has been fast food. And so having that information is like, why would I even bother trying to negotiate with like a Loblaws if nobody even wants it? You know, even if Loblaws said, Hey, we're super interested, it it would be hard for me to say, you know, this is like, nobody wanted the product in the 200 to 250 deliveries that we've done. Nobody said, Hey, we really want you to get some groceries for us. And, and there's a number of reasons that we can chat about for that uh, specific to the Toronto Islands, but I think that's an important mindset for people to recognize that you have to be okay with a little bit of an unknown, but not so much that you have no idea what's going on. And yeah. I think at times I did not have any idea and and to an extent that's a part of entrepreneurship.
0: Yeah. So. What is the thing that you noticed that... Um, drone delivery can be so much cheaper or even faster than regular delivery right now. If you uh, can break that down for me, what is the unit economic of drone delivery? How, how can that be 10 X better than our uh, current options right now?
1: Yeah. So I would say that short term, it will not be 10 X better. This is where it's, it's, it's an interesting sort of concept to talk about because it's in the same, there's, there's a lot of parallels that you have to draw because Logically, everyone thinks about it and they say, you know what, the next step will be drone delivery. That is like, that's going to be zero to one is, is getting there where we're going to have autonomous drones that are going to be flying people around, delivering packages to your backyard. It's going to be basically free because the robots are all going to do it. But when you actually kind of take that, because everyone says, oh, Amazon's going to do it, you know, 2014, they had announced Amazon air and nothing happened. And the reason nothing happened is because they kind of did the same thing where they said. Hey, let's, let's do this really exciting uh, solution. But there wasn't really a major problem to solve because they already had a huge established network of drivers that can deliver practically anything to right. your house in a reasonable amount of time. And so when you look at the costs required in that case, it wasn't worth it. Also, that was eight years ago. So times have changed, batteries have gotten better. And so now when we're tackling the challenge, taking a look at the unit economics, while we're still losing money on an overall cost basis because it's it's expensive to hire people to be building and flying these drones on a per cost basis we're actually profitable and so this is not something that is going to be able to be replicated everywhere but it is something that for us finding that not only product market fit but already being profitable on a per cost basis so we we charge about five to ten dollars for delivery and our costs Mm -hmm. were 450 per delivery so we're not making a ton of money but again the goal for this summer was never for us to make a bunch of cash. If, if I really just wanted to make some, some money on the side, I, I probably would have tried like options trading or gambling or, or uh-huh. brought a boat full of like booze and food and driven it back and forth. Our goal here is not to build a pr- like, this might sound bad. When I say this, we obviously do want a profitable business. But there's a difference, I think, between like a business and a startup. And we yeah. want to build a successful startup. And we are okay with losing money short term, To become a company while because we have this path to scalability and profitability in the future because the reality is you're not going to be super profitable with a couple guys flying drones back and forth that that have 40 dollar burgers and sushi even if you're charging a bunch of money which we were and some people said hey it's a little bit high five to ten bucks for a delivery but we're literally putting it on a drone and bringing it to you so there's there's this kind of like if, if you're on the beach trying to have fun and you want some food it's a wildly convenient like service, and it, it required very little selling on our part. And we also have the benefit, like, this is something that I would encourage founders to really think about. When you have this product that has a wow factor like drones do, mm. it is very easy to approach people, even people who are not interested. It, we almost have the opposite problem where everyone is interested, so we don't know who actually is going to pay. And yeah. so obviously that's a challenge, but one of the benefits of something like that is you get a ton of organic growth. So we saw 13,000 organic followers on our Instagram page just based off of barely posting at all because people love this. People think, oh my gosh, it's going to be so great. We're going to have drones delivering food and packages and and booze and weed and whatnot. Uh, And obviously that's what we're aiming for, but short-term, how do we accomplish that? And so that's what we were able to kind of really sit down, uh, myself and the team and say, let's take a look at what is required. And we built the Toronto Island pilot around that. We first went and knocked on pretty much every door. I I think we did a good job sort of almost like reconnaissance and chatting with people, but the information was there. 20,000 people per day on the weekends attend the islands. That's a huge number of people. For us, our goal was 10 deliveries a day, extremely attainable given a 12 month, a 12 week pilot project only operating on the weekends. And we hit our, our benchmarks and, and, while there were some days where it was slow, some days were quite busy. So we were we were super pleased with how everything turned out and, and how receptive everyone was and how cool people thought it was.
0: Yeah, just just so that the audience understand, do you mind just walking through what, what what you guys are doing specifically in the Toronto Island and how are you guys facilitating the deliveries with your drones, like the the end-to-end
1: story of it? Yeah, absolutely. So it's a... So let me me set the stage for you really quick. The (laughs) Toronto Islands is not something that people go to too frequently. They have three beautiful beaches there. Uh, The one that we were located on was called Wards Island and they have the beach there where people would go. So there are three ferry points. So if you go to the island with your friends or your family, you have two options. You can either take a water taxi or you can take a public ferry. It's almost like a, a transit. You know, the city pays for a lot of it. And it's about a seven dollar trip round trip for the ferry and it's about 10 bucks each way for a water taxi the ferry itself is on a set schedule and the water taxis kind of come and go whenever Uh, two issues with this are obviously time spent waiting at the docks getting on the boat and going there and then the second issue is the limited selection on the island that we had found so i traveled the island Uh, the previous summer, 2021, pretty frequently. As COVID was happening, there wasn't that much to do. So myself and my friends, we had some people we knew who worked there. So it was a really fun way for us to have some sort of social interaction, excuse me, while also uh, kind of having a fun thing to do in the city because there's not always stuff to do, especially when everything was shut down. And so when we were there, the restaurants are serving like pub food and we're saying, okay, that's fine once or twice. But at a certain point, you got to say, don't you want to want like, it's healthy food, salads, you know, like, it's expensive. There are so many issues with this model. And the biggest problem is that there's no, it's not like it's an open space for competition. So other people can't just come and open up restaurants. Whereas we started saying, you know what, this is a problem for us. We kept forgetting food. And other people who we would ask are sharing this challenge, where they go, they bring a sandwich and water, and then they run out of food and drinks. And they're like, okay, what do I do now? Well, if you're 45 minutes to go back to the you got to wait at the point take a ferry home it's it's not really convenient for you and we said you know what this is something we want to try to solve we're experts in the drone industry let's develop a pilot project and so we did and so what would happen is it, because we didn't want to develop an app cuz we just don't have the money to spend 5 10k on it or to hire somebody uh, to do it we said let's do a texting service and so we printed a bunch of lit and that's literature like business cards and that sort of stuff and we were giving it out and you'd scan a QR code, and you would talk with our chat bot on our QR code, which would qualify you as a customer. You could place an order for whatever you would want, say you wanted McDonald's. We would then, once you're ready to order, facilitate that transaction, order on behalf of you, and we would then receive that order from our partner or or Dash or Uber, each, whichever one was quickest. Load it onto the drone, fly the drone over to you, while you're able to click on a link and, and track the progress of the drone. We eventually we want to have you can live stream from the drone, but some people kind of get antsy thinking a drone has a camera flying overhead. So we said, let's not have like a camera on it right now, we'll just put the drone on. Uh, Drone autonomously will fly from point A to point B, which is on the island. That's where your pickup point is, we'll text you when it's here, and you come and pick up your order. And so this is really convenient, because if you're on the beach, you say, hey, I'd like a Big Mac combo and some fries, you say, great, it's 25 bucks, and it'll be here in 30 minutes. And while we would love to get the price down eventually and the time frame down eventually, we had thought, you know what, people are going to be okay with this because there's, they're almost, they're almost trapped here. There's no options. You can't just order Uber Eats and go walk and pick it up. It's literally an Island with water, like restricted access because there's water all around. It. So by us providing this service, we had initially thought, you know what, it would be a great emergency service for the increasingly senior citizens on the Island, but it was mostly people who wanted fast food. And so we said, you know what? We're not going to fight this, even though we think it'd be really nice to kind of help these senior citizens out. A lot of people are kind of doing their own thing. They're used to it. They they intentionally pack extra groceries and food and medication so they don't have to have an emergency. And so this is something we said, we're filling in that niche where people can crave certain things. You know, you have a, you don't have a pizza, but you want a pizza. Well, if you're on the island and it's 7.30, are you really going to go spend an hour and a half going downtown, come back? By that time, it's nine. Your your kids are going to eat something else. like. So we solved that problem by kind of taking advantage of the fact that there is scarcity and giving them an almost abundance of choice. And so uh, we obviously learned stuff like we probably had too much selection, but we then kind of filtered that out by recommending certain items that were more profitable and and kind of almost like pushing the selected menu. Uh, But we still offered pretty much anything that you could get by delivery
0: okay I uh, just so I understand so the drone actually fly fly across the lake from downtown Toronto to the island that's yep. quite a long distance is, is is the drone flying by itself or you have a person on each side of the um, the continent or the land to control it how, how did that work I would imagine it can only so we do have a like, person Like I would imagine like it travels only like a few kilometers, but I, that gap is pretty long. You need the entire ferry to, to get people through your, your drone can just fly through like that.
1: Yeah. So it was, so to be clear, we actually took off from Cherry beach, which is a little bit closer. So the the flight distance was about 1.4 kilometers, which took about three minutes at like our average speed of like 40, 50 kilometers an hour. So it's, it's quite fast. From the time we launch it and flies over, it's, it's, it's really no time at all. Uh, the, you kind of hit it nail on the head. We had an individual who was at point A, as we called it, on Cherry Beach, who the, the delivery would come, they would load it into the drone, then the drone would take off autonomously. The person at that end, basically, because this is a downtown area, there are certain restrictions on flight with drones. So one of the restrictions that we had is that the drone had to be monitored at all times. And while the drone is autonomous and capable of autonomous flight, for legal purposes, the pilot was the one in full control at all time. It's almost like cruise control on your car. Even though you're behind the wheel and a Tesla is capable of driving completely autonomously, you're still responsible for what happens to the car. And so that would be, that's an analogy that I use. And we're trying to essentially take out the driver, which adds cost, and have the car be able to run itself? In this case, it's the drone. One thing for people to note is that drones are significantly easier to program for autonomy than autonomous vehicles are. Uh, if you think about how many inputs that that model has to control, like tire pressure, each tire's traction, the tread on, like there's so many factors. A kid can run out in front, and it has to know, oh, that's a leaf that blew, or or it's a child, we have to stop, or like there's so so many factors. Whereas with a drone you have ultrasonic sensors. And when you're below a certain altitude, planes can't fly there. People think, oh, maybe there's a risk of birds. Never once in my like seven, eight year professional career flying drones has a bird ever attacked or come <laughs> close to the drones. So there, there obviously will be outliers, but our priority was safety. So we really had it where the two points were on the edge of the respective waterfronts. So the times where the drone was flying, it was over water. And we had a pilot who was qualified controlling it. In fact, because of the distance, both pilots are monitoring what the drone is doing. So say my controller dies, but the other pilot was on the other side of the island said, hey, something's going wrong. He could take over control remotely, fly the drone back to his spot or land it next to me. So this is one of the reasons why we got permission is because we have this redundant system that while a lot of it is off the shelf, a lot of this is like a proprietary system that we've built that enables us to do this safely and effectively. Cause at the end of the day, we want to do this safely. And a lot of people say, Hey, there's an Island close by, but the reality of that is that we're not flying. Like there are lanes where the planes are allowed to take off and land from, and we are not even in, it's almost like a, on the 401 in Toronto where you have different lanes and there's a divider in between them. There's no, like the planes are not allowed to go th- as low as we're flying. We're flying at altitudes of below 200 feet like it is illegal for a plane to do that. So while there obviously is a risk of planes doing erratic things or the drone potentially malfunctioning and flying up, we have all the safety precautions required. We have the radios, we have direct communication with air traffic control. We have insurance. That's pretty significant, about $10 million worth. So we're trying to minimize this aspect as much as possible and prioritize the safety of People on the ground and in the air. And, and I believe we've done so. And the regulatory body in Canada also agrees with us, which is why we were given permission to do so. Uh, but we just were able to find that sort of niche where other companies and other drone companies that exist, not only were they just not willing to because it's mm. a quite capital and h- intensive business, a lot of people don't have that. They, they weren't on the island. They don't understand that there is few selection. The mentality when you're there is like, you want to stay as long as possible. It's almost like it, it's hard to explain, but. Planning a trip out there is a very special thing. It takes a lot of time and energy. And when you're there, you don't want to stop that trip for an hour and a half to go in because you forgot something small. And so you're willing to pay, in our case, 10, 15 bucks premium on what you order to have it delivered to you. Uh, Eventually, we want to reduce that fee because some people, rightly so, were saying, hey, it's a little bit high, but we weren't even really making that much money off of it. So we weren't in it for the money. We're really in it to try to cover our costs and really solve challenges for these people.
0: You, you designed such a robust system to ensure safety is number one, because because I would imagine a lot of people would ask, what if, you know, the drone fall down and then kill someone? What if, you know, it doesn't work and the full fall off? So I, I'm really, really glad that you took that into the consideration and making sure that people and humans are actually monitoring it. Um, and I, I want to ask, um, you've designed such a robust system and also designed those um, algorithms to control the uh, the drones what has been the most difficult part since you started hover until now that you know it, it's been
1: it's been the number one difficulties for you it's surprising how some negative voices stand out i would definitely say that the like this is going to sound kind of funny because the actual hardware itself isn't that difficult you know understand like i had mentioned the autonomy with drone. There's, there's a lot of open source stuff out there. The drones that we use are off-the-shelf systems. They have mm-hmm. open SDKs that we were able to build on top of. These are not really, like, from a, a technological standpoint, this is not that difficult of a task. Operationally speaking is really where it starts to get tricky. So ensuring that we're compliant with all of the regulatory bodies. So this is where it gets really interesting because the city of Toronto technically has no real legal authority of the airspace above it. And this is where it gets very fascinating because drones are regulated federally. So if the city of Toronto one day said, drones are bad, we wanna ban them. And they passed a motion, it was unanimously gone through. And in a day, all drones are banned. It's one of those things that it's non-enforceable because it's, you cannot simply unilaterally ban drones from the skies when they're already regulated federally. It just, that's not how it works. So we had a lot of moments where like parks, superintendents would come in and say, Oh, you guys are flying close to the park. You're not allowed to do that. And I said, well here, like it's really difficult (laughs) to kind of say, no, you're wrong to somebody. But the reality is it's like, if we're on public land, you're allowed to be flying there. So you could buy a drone and stand on a sidewalk and fly it. If you are operating safely and your drone is flying over someone's house, as long as you're reasonably not causing a disturbance and you're not spying on them, you're allowed to fly over their house. So there's there's a couple like the legal definitions in this get really interesting and it differs because some people say, oh, you own airspace that's like 50 feet above your house or 100 feet. The reality is there's no defined system. So we said we're just going to go 200 feet above. We're going to try to avoid going over anyone's houses. And so we fly completely over water. You still are going to get people that complain as we did where they said, oh, you guys are flying close to our house. And we're like, we're flying over the water. We're not pointing a camera at you. And like, even just some people aren't very logical about it. Why do I want to? Why do I care about what you're you're up to in your house? You know, like, I can't, it just it makes no sense. We're, we're here trying to build a business. And we actually did some consultations with people on the island. And, and I would say one of the trickier part was having people come up to you and people send you emails saying, I don't want you to do this. Or like, uh. why are you doing this? Or some guy said, "Oh, you're just this greedy Toronto City guy who's trying to do this." and i'm like we we're trying to help people on your island by improving. We actually offered to do a lot of this for free for the people on the island, but again, people didn't really want the benefits of sort of prescription or grocery delivery, and a part of that is they have their habits and they're an amazing group of people that i, I I've met and spoken with a ton of the people on the island, and i I absolutely love them and and they've been very supportive for us, but that's probably the hardest thing is having some people who are really critical about what you're doing and and really don't like it. And so that, that was probably challenging because genuinely we're trying to help solve problems and help people. And we're trying to do it in creative, technologically sort of advanced way. People are resistant to change. And and although you kind of hear about it and read it, it's Mm -hmm. a different thing for seeing comments that are like, this is a dumb idea, or why is meta putting so much money towards the VR headset? And then when you have someone in front of you say, why are you doing this? Like, and yelling at you. And then yeah. I just have to, like, I'm not going to, there also is a matter of like police are technically the only ones who can say, Hey, what's your ID? Like if you're on public property. And yeah. so when you have people kind of demanding to see your licenses, there is sort of a like balancing act of complying with them and also saying, Hey, so sorry, we're not going to do this. So like, uh, that's these ladies are trying to take pictures of our ideas and stuff like that. And we're like, Hey, we're not, we're not going to participate in this. If you guys have a problem with what we're doing and think we're breaking the law, you guys are welcome to call the police. And so trying to deal with that interaction while you're running a business, it's a very stressful thing to do. And you're in the same spot every day. And so it's like, it is mentally tough to get up and say, I'm going to go back and stand there. and fully expecting to face the brunt of angry people who don't understand really what it is. So,
0: yeah. Uh, I, I remember watching a video of um, Elon Musk being interviewed and and um, the interviewer is saying that Armstrong, which is the guy that stepped uh, his feet on the moon, wasn't really supporting what Elon Musk was doing. And Elon Musk got really upset because uh, it was his hero growing up. I, I would imagine it will probably feel the same as well. You're there trying to innovate and really help the people on the island because of lack, lack of education and lack of understanding of um, what the policy and regulations are, they wasn't able to, you know, understand, you know, the way that you're operating it. And they didn't understand how the how the drone work. And I would imagine that would be related to the regulation. So what, what do you think the government or the city um, can do to educate people um, to, to put out the law out there and let people understand how they're regulating the drones and how like, for example, spying on them is not allowed in the city. So what do you think the government can
1: do about it? It's a good question. And I I definitely agree with your initial statement. And while I don't want to compare myself to Elon Musk, (laughs) um, I I definitely agree that it's like, I I care about these people. No, I I want to help them, especially some of the senior citizens who like, I I love my grandparents. I, I take care of them frequently. And so for me, if I can create a solution that can potentially help them and, and make their lives easier, I would want to do that. And that's part of where my main kind of focus was supposed to be. And so we did, one of the things that we did do that I think in hindsight, I probably should have done more of them is we, we went basically door to door in every home on the island and we dropped literature off. And we said, this is what we want to do. This is when we want to have a consultation with you guys. We will explain everything that's going on. And we did it twice. Nobody showed up either times. And so we uh, like there's four or five hundred homes I think, um, and several hundred like seven hundred residents I think at the last count. I'm not sure if that's accurate because some people sort of put that as their main residence, but they may not be there. Um, and nobody shows up. So it's kind of like, at, how do we balance the act of keeping people informed while also pushing to innovate? You know, I don't want to I don't want to piss anybody off if I don't have right. to. But if I'm legally allowed to fly. And we've dealt with it before the drone industry is not like this is not something i'm foreign to where people will Mm. say why are you flying and you're kind of like i'm doing my job you know i like if you're in the middle of flying it's hard for you to have a conversation with somebody trying to justify why you're there so there's there's ways to do it but our challenge was we no longer are being discreet because when you're a drone operator flying like a commercial building you can kind of position yourself on top of the building or in a parking lot and you're not having everyone walk you're not standing in the middle of the street but for us we needed that sort of visibility to be able to acquire customers. And so we needed to be there. I think for the, for the city's part, they've been fantastic. We, I met John Tory at the collision tech conference and uh, he had said he wanted to come to our launch. Unfortunately he was busy as the mayor of Toronto always is. And I think we're, we are a little too small for him to, uh, to kind of prioritize, but hopefully one day that will change. Um, But they're quite supportive of it. I think it's, It it was pretty cool. I just, he actually, he actually gave me a card and he was like, yeah, email me and I'll I'll try to make it up. And I was like, oh, wow, that's really cool. Like, that's
0: amazing. It was a a really
1: positive indicator. Yeah. Yeah. And so that's, that's the other thing of like, I started being like, wow, people are really interested in this. Like, this is a really cool thing. And I would encourage other entrepreneurs or other people to try to find businesses where you get that. Because even though I'm not making that much money from it and it's quite difficult, I'm getting these positive indicators and it's encouraging me to sort of, take a look and say, wow, like I should keep doing this. Like what happens if I do this for another year or two years, where will I be? You know, I'm establishing all of these relationships. And I I think the city of Toronto has done a good job and I, we actually, we emailed them a bunch and we got sort of copies of the email where they say there's something kind of cool with drone delivery where it's considered the same as other food delivery companies because the food itself is not the product. We are like a delivery company, you know, so what we technically, what we transport is not ours and we're transporting it for someone else. Mm. So there's a, a clear distinction when that's the case, you don't need a business license to do that. And so that oh, was one of the challenges yes. of like a Uber Eats driver does not need a business license to park on the side of the street and walk up to your door and knock on your door. That just, it doesn't make sense for them to do so. And I think the city of Toronto has been really good in saying we, stand by this regulation, even though drones are new, because I was worried they were going to say, hey, we got to reevaluate or it doesn't apply. And it's not allowed. But prior to starting, we figured out all the regulations and some of the other companies in the drone delivery space, they're really slowed down by the regulations, So they create a, a business model that doesn't work because the regulations aren't there. And I think that's a very dangerous thing to do. We're trying to build a business when you're not allowed to. Hmm. And so it, it's almost similar to like, early, like so many cannabis companies went out of business because they were too early and the government said you can't operate. But you have to time it just right. And I believe we found that timing where we're allowed to do this, the regulations are slowly changing, where autonomous flight is going to be increasingly uh, common. And next two to five years, you're going to see it in Canada, and it's going to be a common thing. There's going to be households who are going to have this. So it's something that I'm, I'm very excited for. And I think the city of Toronto has done a fantastic job already. Um, obviously there's more that can be done, but there's always more that can be done in, in any sort of angle that you look at it for every business.
0: Yeah, that's great. Um, I think drone delivery has been um, existed in a long time. I remember the first time I heard of it was like 2014, 2015. It's It's been quite a bit long time. It's been like almost eight, nine years. And do you know, like from your perspective, what was some reasons that the um, advancement of the drone delivery technology has been delayed or is it regulation is there any like for example the mapping of the 3d delivery route what is it that you in your opinion that's delayed so much battery life is
1: a huge one i would mm-hmm. say the regulations is probably up there as well those are probably the two biggest thing i think the like we've had military grade drones that have had this technology for a long long time since like oh. the 90s oh, really? um but oh yeah drone so people like they're a lot of this cool technology actually starts kind of ironically from the military industrial complex, which a lot of people don't realize. So drone like GPS obviously is a big one that we now use for commercial purposes, developed militarily, uh, drones themselves developed militarily, autonomous drones, although they've been piloted, it's almost, it's easy to kind of have this increasing level of autonomy in the eighties and nineties with drones. So, uh, it's, it's something that it really only took off, um, In the late 2000s when dji started releasing consumer grade drones uh the reason i i would say in like the past decade the reason why we haven't seen as big growth in it is it's just a pure regulatory standpoint the technology isn't that good and the regulations aren't really there to support it. and so the while that is the case we're now starting to see regulations are now conducive for what we're trying to do we couldn't have done this a year ago like we, we, we had like the perfect window of opportunity where the regulations changed. We got the necessary permits to be able to do this completely legally. I was calling everyone. I was calling <laughs> cities. I was calling the government. I was calling Transport Canada and saying, this is what I want to do. What do I need to do it? And people would say, hey, you need this license. So I went out and got that license. And so I definitely think the next step now that the technology and the regulations are there is finding the product market fit for a broader audience so we found it for the toronto islands or at least what i believe is uh we now need to do it at scale for people such as yourself and even customers like me like if i'm a customer i order from food delivery apps a couple times a week i would be an excellent example of someone who would love to have cheaper fees and food deliver faster that's not handled by somebody in a car and now briefly mentioning going back to what you were saying about how sort of like drones falling out of the sky that is a possibility like I'm not naive to say there will never be an accident. Outliers do happen while we are preparing for almost every eventuality. There will be things that we can't predict. Uh, But I think one thing to keep in mind is that when you're innovating something, there always are challenges. And I think it's a good frame of reference to also look at, think about how many cars are on the road that are delivering food. And there are real issues with cars and drivers when the model is predicated on you going as fast as you can to deliver a food to someone's door people have died and gotten hit by cars especially delivery drivers who are in a rush they're trying to deliver it as fast as you can because you've built a model that relies on speed for their livelihood and mm-hmm. so now you have people who even if you say hey i'm a great driver you're probably gonna push a little bit if you realize hey TikTok, i'm on the like the faster you go the more money you can make it's human nature And so when we say, hey, we can eliminate that, not irresponsibility, but that sort of externality that is caused by not only the model that some of these big food apps have created, but also just by the nature of it, you're going to have, if you have a a robot that's doing this over and over again on a pre-planned route, it is significantly safer than a driver who has to run in, grab your food, get in their car, leave the car running. And so all this time you have infrastructure strain, you have vehicle costs, you're burning gas, and then the person's time. So all those costs add up versus a, a drone that can do that round trip in three minutes instead of a guy driving it in 15 minutes. Mm, right. And as the end customer, all you care about is paying less and having a better quality product. And so mm. if you can now add in this very cool user experience of a drone is flying down to and yeah. it'll lower on. So we have a couple different models. What we're going to have for backyard drone delivery is a winch. It's going to lower it, drop it off in your backyard or, or or porch or driveway or wherever we've deemed is safe. You're gonna get your food quickly, efficiently. You're gonna now start to say, why am I even going to get anything if I can simply have like smaller items that I like with a five pound limit as well. It's a pretty significant payload. We found it's food is also an excellent, instead of sort of cargo, I know we didn't talk about this too much, but instead of the like an Amazon package, which varies greatly in size and weight, Mm -hmm. we're able to have something that is fairly repeatable because a food package, if, if you think about a McDonald's bag, they, yes, they have like small and large, but you can just have two McDonald's bags and put them in. Or if it's a huge order, you do two trips. Like there is the ability to have multiple trips. It's not, you're not, you're not really limited because the drone can just go back and get it again. And so that's one thing that we had to do a couple times. If there's like a couple big pizzas or a sushi platter, we had to do multiple trips, but people don't mind. They love it. We had people who would order, stand there for half an hour just to film it coming down the 30 seconds that it came, dropped the package off and flew back. That's all they would do. And they were so thrilled by it. And when, you, when I see somebody doing that, that is a huge positive indicator for me that this is something that will continue. And this is going to trend in the right direction. And I believe we're right at the beginning. So we may have first mover advantage.
0: That's great. I'm, I'm really happy. <laughs> um, I, I guess in the beginning right now is a wow factor because people have never seen it before. Uh, and people are taking pictures and video of it. Um, and I would imagine in the next few years, this will be a common thing people won't be taking any pictures and it will just be treated as any other deliveries. So my question is, when do you think that common trend will happen and what do we need to do to get there and
1: what's lacking right now to be able to get there? Great question. I think about this constantly. I would say that one of the challenges as Canadians that we face is we have a bitterly cold winter and (laughs) cold can negatively impact a lot of different things. From a technological standpoint, it is somewhat straightforward to operate in the cold. You just need to preheat the batteries a little bit. Lithium ion batteries as well generate their own heat just as a byproduct of operating and transferring electricity to the system. So that is less of an issue. Uh, what is a, a bigger issue is what you mentioned of like, what is lacking, you know? And I think a part of it is culturally speaking, people are hesitant. Like any new technology people are very hesitant of what's going on. In the same way, people thought emails were a fad or computers, oh, we don't want to have a computer in our house, it's too expensive or big or noisy. It, it will take time. I definitely think that people are not always going to like the idea of a drone coming in. And that's something that is going challenging. Your neighbor, for example. If your neighbor hates drones right now, they're not going to like the idea of you delivering a, a package every couple of days. They're going to think, oh, this guy's spying on me. Oh, it's annoying. The reality is, though, when you are dr- able to address these concerns and, and spread awareness and education through public meetings, seminars, demos, you're going to get buy in slowly and surely. So, addressing some of those really quickly from a noise perspective, the drone's going to hover at 100 feet and lower it down. That's 30 meters, that's very high up. So we don't have a camera facing down. So you're, you, there's no risk of you guys having your neighbor's backyard picture being taken. But it's it's this. Some of these concerns to me are small, but to a, another person are minor or, or major. Excuse me. So I don't want to minimize their concerns. And so this is something having patience when you're explaining this benefits versus the cons and. And then eventually sort of getting enough customers that you're going to hit that adoption curve where people start saying, hey, this is pretty cool. Let's try it. Out. And it, it won't be, by the way, in the city for the timeline sake, it will be three to five years before it comes to a city. And so mm-hmm. the the challenge with cities are it's much more dense and a term is called just built up areas. And that becomes very challenging from a regulatory perspective when you start having autonomous drones flying constantly over people and school buses and cars, the likelihood that if it falls out of the sky that someone gets hit is significantly higher in a city than it is in a suburb area. And so that's why our first sort of autonomous, uh, what's called beyond visual line of sight pilot is going to operate in a suburban area that still has a relatively high density uh, from a a unit economic standpoint. We're doing enough volume that's going to justify it, but you're still in a remote enough area that, the safety concerns are addressed.
0: Yeah, I, I think right now the software and the hardware is there. It's just the regulation and the perception of people uh, of what it, it will look like when drones are everywhere. Um, so I, I think culturally or regulatory that that's going to take a bit time for a lot of people to understand and actually accept it. But hopefully, you know, people are, are more expe- yeah. are more acceptive and they understand that, you know, if they happen, it will help them significantly reduce the cost of them getting delivery. So I uh, hope that happens soon. And last question, what in your mind without considering any, you know, regulation, any cultural issues, what will be the perfect world when this will happen? Can you describe like a world where you know no no
1: concerns at all happen <laughs> What the world will look? I believe within 5 to 7 years we're going to have autonomous drones doing a significant amount of not only the food delivery but package and cargo delivery. So mail, packages, food, pretty much anything that you need that's under a certain weight is going to be able to be delivered to either it's going to be a a hub. So say you're in a hotel, it could be something that's in the center of the hotel. It could be something attached to your window. Something we're trying to develop now is balcony drone delivery. And we're thinking that's a couple years out, but lots of people have apartment buildings. If you can have the ability for the drone to rest on the balcony and slide a package over the edge, That's something that would probably interest many, many people who don't have a home. And then, of course, those who do have homes are likely going to install permanent or semi-permanent fixtures where the drone would be able to lower the package, almost landing pads. Mm. And this is something that, that this behavior has already been seen in the States by existing drone delivery companies. And you'd be surprised how many people, when you offer them this, will want some sort of secure spot in their yard where they can get whatever they want. And so it'll be, it'll be the same way you order anything off of Amazon. You're going to have a, a list of items you can choose. You're going to have it and you're going to push a button. You're going to forget about it. A couple, like five minutes later, 10 minutes later, you're going to get a notification on your phone. Oh, your package has just arrived or it's going to be here shortly. And and you walk outside, you get it and you come back in. So your time spent getting some of these small menial items like diapers, toilet paper, uh, toothpaste, you know, spices. If you're cooking something, I think it'd be really cool. If you're making dinner and you forget a certain spice, you order that spice. And by the time your dinner is finished, you have that to season, whatever it is that you're cooking. And that, so that's the level of convenience that I want.
0: That's the true 15 minute grocery delivery. Um, I'm, I'm not sure if I told you this, but I started a 15 minute grocery delivery company. Um, actually cool. just shut it down a couple months ago, but the major issue is our, um, our workforce, it's too expensive. And there's so many different conditions is happening, especially in the winter. Um, And our our main concept is, you know, you can get anything whenever you want. Like if you're forgetting, you know, something, when you're cooking, you can get the ingredients right away. And right now humans are sort of able to do that, but in the cause of huge, huge burn and spend of money. But if drone can do that, that's really life-changing. Um, and last question, What what is your advice for someone who want to start their business right now?
1: I would say take your ego away and find something that you're good at doing. That you can do ideally with, with pay, but more than likely it's going to be without pay for a long period of time. Uh, it's It's not easy and kind of putting off any time horizons onto what it would look like. I definitely think solving a problem is so incredibly important. I would encourage people from a, from sort of a realistic standpoint, take a look at what you're good at and try to find a group of people who also share a similar interest and create a company with them. Surround yourself with people who are entrepreneurial, who really care about the things that, that you have similar interests, but you're different enough. And this is kind of a, a wish list, but having friends who are able to challenge you, who think differently is quite important. And and you may find that they would be excellent co-founders. So that's something to consider. Uh, and it's something that I think a lot of people should should really consider entrepreneurship because it it's just extremely satisfying, especially like i 've been doing this a long time and i've only started recently making progress enough that like, Frank thank you for having me like on this podcast nobody would even want to talk to me about this before so it's a it, it's it's a grind and enjoying that because it's it's definitely some of the best times of my life so far
0: you no know, thank you so much, um Cameron, for sharing your insight on the drone delivery space and Um, It's not easy as an entrepreneur, especially when you're young and you have no experience before. And I'm glad that you are, you know, doing this extremely difficult thing and solving this, you know, huge problem that we're having right now. I wish the best to you. And, uh, you know, you know, I'm really happy that you're doing this.
1: Thank you so much, Frank. I really appreciate it.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of Ideas Can't Wait podcast. If you have taken something away from this episode and really enjoyed our conversation, it will mean the world to me if you can leave a review on wherever you're listening or watching. It will help this podcast to reach more like-minded people like you. Thanks again, and I'll see you in the next one.